Hey guys, and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. And this week, we're going to be talking about the British Empire. That's right. The sun never sets on the British Empire, right? And that's really true, because at one point, all of these colonies were part of the British Empire. The British Empire was huge. At one point in 1922, which was at its height, it governed a fifth of the world's population and a quarter of the world's total land area. That's crazy. Yes. And the reason we're going to talk today about the British Empire is that there is this oft-told story that all of us have heard about this benevolent British Empire, which bestowed freedom on her colonies when they were deemed ready. And we know that this is largely a myth. The most famous story of independence that most of us know is the story of American independence. But all around the world, there were so many uprisings and protests against British rule that were put down brutally by the empire that does not find a space in either the public domain or in our history textbooks anymore. The British public are generally proud of the, their colonial past and in today's public discourse, not enough attention is paid to the price that was paid by the colonies for Britain's success. If you look at recent polls, as recent as 2016 in Britain, it was surprising that 44% of the people polled in Britain were proud of their history of colonialism. Yeah, and a lot of the problem with this is that the United Kingdom and Britain have created this myth in the colonies that they took over and eventually gained independence or didn't. And they point out how they instituted formal systems of government and law and education and they developed railroads and a lot of other infrastructure. That's right. The British period was always marked by one catchphrase, which was economic development. And, you know, we will talk in this episode about how that is also a myth. So let's start with Asia, where Britain obviously had a lot of colonies in Southeast Asia, especially, most famously, India, right? Yes. So, in fact, the history of British colonialism is mostly a history of them either trying to find India or having found India trying to exploit its riches economically. But one of the examples that we can talk about is the poppy farming that was done in India. Now, we've talked about the opium wars and the opium trades with China, but a lot of that poppy farming was actually done in India. Indian farmers were forced to change their centuries of heritage of farming and plant these poppy seeds and grow this opium and package it in factories which were set up on Indian soil and for the opium trade to China. Yes, and a lot of this is why China was forced to open its doors to the British Indian opium. Right. The East India Company was managing all of that, which in time then eventually got into so-called partnerships with the small kingdoms and eventually led to what we call the British Raj or the rule of the British. And a lot of the British people actually argued that because of this opium business and because of their trade in India, they were boosting the Indian economy and they were keeping the farmers happy. But this was not the case at all. 
Yes, the opium business was hugely exploitative. It ended up impoverishing Indian peasants and these peasants would have been much better without it is the opinion of researchers now looking back at that time. The most prominent of them being Rolf Bauer, who is a professor of economic and social history at the University of Vienna. Because of this exploitation and a lot of the other actions that the British took, independence movements were starting to surge in India, especially around World War One, when a lot of Indian soldiers were fighting for the British in World War One, and yet back at home they were completely being exploited. So in 1919, one of the most famous landmarks in Indian independence that is skirted over, if you hear about Indian independence, you always hear about Mahatma Gandhi, but you don't hear about any of the events that led up to uh, his movement, which was the Jallianwala massacre. Yes. So this happened in April 1919. And this was at a time when all these uprisings were so troublesome that the British government had enacted a law that prohibited people from aggregating in crowds. It was the festival of Baisakhi and a lot of people had in fact aggregated in a small courtyard and there were thousands of people. There was only one way in and out and General Dyer showed up there to enforce the law and he ordered the soldiers to fire indiscriminately into the crowd until uh, all the bullets were gone. Within 10 minutes, thousands were injured and at least 400 people were dead. This incident created a huge uproar in India and actually it led to a lot of people, including Mahatma Gandhi, who returned his award from the British government that he had been given for his work running an ambulance course in South Africa. And after that, Jallianwala Bagh massacre, it became obvious that the British Raj was not benevolent at all. Another one of these events that led up to this in India specifically was a famine, which is true in many of the colonies, but specifically in India around World War II and after World War II, there was the Bengal famine, most famously. Yes, and I think a lot of this stemmed from the fact that the British Empire operated on the principle that it had assets in various locations and did not think much about moving assets from one location to another, irrespective of what damage it was causing in that local economy. So the Bengal famine actually brought that home to the people of India because 4 million Bengalis starved to death because of crop failure. And instead of bringing in food into Bengal, Winston Churchill decided to take food out of Bengal and continue to export food away from the famine areas into other parts of the British Empire. And one of the saddest things is that Churchill, who is revered by many people, actually said while this event was occurring, quote, I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion. The famine was their own fault for breeding like rabbits. So again, this is another tool that oppressors use, and not specifically Churchill, but the British Empire as a whole used, where they are blaming the people who were colonized. We could spend a whole like episode just talking about the word colonized and how that has such positive implications, whereas it had such negative after effects. Mm-hmm. But they blame it on the people that were colonized rather than accepting the fact that it was because of their actions that these things happened. Right. 
And of course, the one event that many people from the subcontinent, especially if they were in the north of the country, would not forget is the separation of India and Pakistan. Under the guise of independence, actually, there was a huge migration of people between the two countries, which led to so much death and slaughter and separation of families that even today, there are brothers and sisters who live across the border from each other and have not seen each other since they separated during independence. Yeah. So again, the part that the British Empire played in the events that came about surrounding the partition of India are also underplayed. Another colony that the British took around the time that they were colonizing India, quote unquote colonizing, was Afghanistan. Because in 1770, the British Empire had a monopoly on opium production and they wanted that cultivation to spread into Afghanistan. Because the boundary was not well defined at that point and it was convenient for them because it was like on the way to India. Yes, and I think they were also concerned about some Russian incursions that were happening from the other side and they were anxious to consolidate their land. So they handpicked their king, Shah Shroja, and built a garrison in Kabul to prop him up. However, the local Afghani population did not like this and they resisted this and there was a big war in Afghanistan. And it was not just Afghanistan too, because much of the Middle East was actually taken because the British wanted to protect their routes to India and they wanted to help spread that opium trade. So Burma, the Malay states, uh, Borneo, all of these were like popular trading destinations that ships visited when they were going to and from India and China. And that's why a lot of those countries were taken. Right. So the story that underlies all of this British imperialism and colonial life is that initially it was economics and economy, and then it was strategy to try to protect their investments and prevent other imperial powers from taking away things from them. But the story that is lost, the history, the losers and all of this are the peoples who populated those lands and whose descendants still live on that land with the past history of colonialism. Yes, and so there's so many more tales and events like this in the Indian history and lots of other Asian uh, histories, but the British didn't just colonize Asia, they also colonized other countries and places around the world. So, one other place the British colonized during their imperialistic conquest was a lot of the islands in Oceania, including Australia and New Zealand and all of those Micronesian islands. So Hold we on. know that you probably learn a lot about Native American tribes and indigenous populations in North America, but you probably do not hear about the indigenous populations in Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, so the Maori in New Zealand and the Aborigines in Australia, which is like a broad term, just like Native Americans, were the two indigenous populations in these two um, islands. And uh, before the British even came, they did have a significant impact on the forest. They did clear a lot of land for agriculture and they used this like slash and burn type method. So we are not claiming that they did all of the best things to protect their environment. They were doing what they could to survive and, you know, establish themselves on that land. But 
once the British came, they were forced off of this land that they had worked so hard to create. And they're still forced off of this land today, but these indigenous populations were treated extremely harshly because the British Empire basically claimed Australia and New Zealand and all of these islands as no man's land or terra nullius. So even though for probably hundreds of years there were indigenous people on that land, uh, the British Empire decided to call it an empty no man's land which they could lay claim on. Yeah. And there were a lot of different struggles. There were so many different islands, so many different populaces that were affected by this. Many of them eventually around the time that India got its independence in the 1960s and 70s and 80s were started forming these independence movements and slowly started getting their independence. But there are still a lot of islands in the Pacific that still technically belong to the British Empire. And we've been talking about Australia and New Zealand, but these islands also include uh, islands like Fiji and Kiribati and Nauru and the Solomon Islands and Tonga. All of these islands were also part of that British Empire. When we think about islands though, which were part of the British Empire, the most famous are the West Indies. Yes, also known as all of the Caribbean islands. And you know, that includes Jamaica and the Dominican Republic mm -hmm. and St. Kitts and Nevis and all of these different islands. And they each have such rich and cultured histories about them, but all of them were shaped by the fact that the British Empire came and they colonized, again, quote unquote, they colonized these countries. And they brought a lot of slaves to these Caribbean islands, which is why a lot of them have large black populaces now. So the English colonists were the first ones to actually even change agriculture in the Caribbean. They tried growing sugarcane. It was not a local plant, but it grew well in that climate. And then it was used to make sugar. And then this product was very, very popular back in Europe. And so the sugar plantations in the Caribbean made a lot of people in Europe very wealthy. Yes, and this also caused a lot of rivalry between Britain and France and other European countries because they were all fighting for that prime climate and place to grow all of these plants, which is why a lot of these countries' histories are marked by Britain and France. But throughout this, there was always the system of segregation against people of color, and they have different names for them on different islands, and all of them were degrading mm -hmm. and they always put Creole people, that was their term, they always put Creole people on top in these islands. Right, so the history of British occupation of uh, the Caribbean islands cannot be separated from the history of slavery. Yes, but around the 1800s, while Britain was getting a lot of heat for having slaves from its people, they officially ended their slave trade in 1807. But just like how America ended their slave trade, this didn't actually work out that well. It was only in August of 1834 that slavery ended in the Caribbean, but it really didn't end because following the abolition of slavery was this period of apprenticeship, which was a system that Britain put into place for four years across most of the Caribbean. It was intended to help transition a lot of the African people that they had enslaved into better lifestyles, but apprenticeship was really just another form of slavery. And even after they ended this program, things were very unequal and still are.
Yes, another fallout of the end of slavery in the Caribbean was that in order to then have people to work the land, indentured labor was introduced from India and China. And this system resulted in so much abuse and this was actually not abolished until the early part of the 20th century. Even now, many people of Indian and African origin struggle to own land and create their own communities in the Caribbean. Well, we talked about Africa, but I think that the history of Africa is so fraught with myths and misconceptions that I feel like we can devote an entire episode to the story of colonial life in Africa. Yes, that's true. There's so much about the rich histories of so many different countries in Africa that we really learn nothing about in school. But what we do learn about is slavery. And for the purpose of the British Empire, slavery is what they abused Africans, African land, African people, African resources, was all for their own benefit. So slavery really was one of the big things that shaped Africa, unfortunately, because of the abuse that the British Empire put them through. Like you said earlier, there's the forced migration of Chinese and Indian people as indentured laborers, and there was obviously the forced migration of Africans as slaves across the world. They would send their convicts, they would forcibly send them to Australia and New Zealand, almost using them as like a type of jail for convicts. And basically any of the indigenous and native people to the countries and places that they colonized would be displaced. Right. And the interesting thing is that even though, you know, we talk about the British Empire, Scotland and Wales and Ireland, which were, which now we think of as part of the rulers, actually the Welsh, the Scots and the Irish traveled all over the world as a result of the British Empire. A lot of people from these native countries were actually ended up going to Britain. And that's why there's such strong African and Caribbean and Asian communities in Britain because of the upheavals of British colonialism. That's right. So even today, if you look around us, we see the effects of the British Empire all over the world. And you can see traces of the remnants of colonial life and colonialism, not only on the landscape, but also on people's mentalities. Along with that, the upheavals and the lasting impact of the British Empire was not just with the people that they displaced, but also with the people that were left and were harmed and affected because of their impact in their countries, including notably the indigenous people in Australia and New Zealand and across Oceania, many of them are still treated very badly and Native Americans in America. We didn't focus on America in this episode because we all hear so much in America about our storied history, but we don't hear much about any of these other countries that were affected and I would say almost worse impacted than America because American independence was achieved relatively early. Yes, and obviously the Native American populace in America has been kind of pushed to the side since they were treated very horribly as we first arrived in America and slowly we have been trying to try to correct that history and try to fix those relationships. But many indigenous people across the world, including in Australia and New Zealand, still suffer 
from cultural insignificance, they've been pushed to the side and they're trying now to get back into their political landscape and into their just rightful place yeah. in history. So one last gem that we'll leave you with is a personal anecdote about one of our encounters. That's right. So this is about the Kohinoor diamond, which is a very, very famous diamond that now adorns the crown jewels of the Queen of England, but was originally from India. We don't know the origin of where this diamond came from, but it was a famous diamond that was passed around from the Mughal emperors to Maharaja Ranjit Singh and eventually his descendants. And finally, it was a 10-year-old boy who was the prince of that state who, quote-unquote, gifted it to the British Empire in exchange for safety and protection. This stone was then cut and polished and placed in the royal crown. Yes, that's right. So we actually went on a family trip to England and we were waiting in line at the Tower of London to see the crown jewels, which included the Kohinoor diamond. And I saw a British officer. Yes, he was a guard standing guard outside the Tower of London. And as you passed him by, you said to him that you were going to see the diamond that was stolen from India. And without batting an eyelid, he immediately retorted, it was a gift from the Maharaja. The fact that he could say that so quickly brought home to me the fact that the myth about a benevolent British empire is still alive and kicking to this day. But the thing that really stood out for me that day was the fact that you actually did not have any fear in challenging the common narrative mm -hmm. as a child. And that is what I took away from it is that we should not be afraid of challenging the narrative of things we are told. Yeah, and just like how we always bring it back to fear, we're going to do it one more time. But this time it's our part and all our role to not be afraid of looking deeper and understanding the real stories and the real effects that things like the British Empire had on the people around them and on the places around them. That's right. We need to look at history written by the losers. Thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you leave us a comment, review, rating, and subscribe to us on your streaming service. And make sure to share us with your friends. This has been History Written by the Losers.